Welcome to the Dental Code Advisor Podcast, hosted by Practice Boosters coding experts, Dr. Charles Blair and Dr. Greg Grobmeyer. Interpretations of the CDT codes represent the opinions of our experts. For the latest CDT codes and official interpretations, contact the American Dental Association or visit ADA.org. You are responsible for your own use of the CDT codes. Tune in now for timely information regarding dental coding. Hello, and welcome to the third installment of the Dental Code Advisor podcast. I'm Dr. Greg Grobmeyer, and I'm here with Dr. Charles Blair, one of the leading authorities on dental insurance coding and administration. How are you today, Dr. Blair? I'm fine, Greg. I'm really happy to be here and excited for our podcast today. Last episode of the Dental Code Advisor podcast, we began discussion of PPO insurance. Started by talking about being out of network, the pros, the cons, the myths about being out of network, the importance of chart notes and still accurately reporting what you do, even though you're not under contract. We also discussed how to still attract patients to your practice while being out of network. We then moved on and began talking about being in network. We discussed the two types of PPOs, self-funded versus fully insured plans and the differences between them. We also got into fee capping, what it is and how if you have state laws against fee capping, it still probably only applies to about half your patients. So if you didn't get to listen to that episode, I would highly recommend going back and checking it out. Today, we continue our discussion of everything you need to know about being in network. I want to start with a few of the documents that define the relationship between the dentist and the payer and why you need to be familiar with all of these and what they say. Dr. Blair, can you discuss a little bit about these different documents and what they really mean to the doctor and to the insurer? Sure, I'll be happy to uh, discuss that. First of all, contract. I think everybody realizes when you join a PPO, there's a contract. I think virtually 100% of doctors and team understands that. What they do not know in many cases is that every PPO, every one of them, has a policy processing policy manual. It also could be called a provider's handbook. And this gives you the detail, Greg, of the ins and outs, the handcuffs of that relationship. The plan summary versus the plan document. By the way, going back to the contract and the processing policy manual, every PPO wants you to have that. They don't hide that whatsoever. They beg you to read it. They beg you to have a vision of looking in there and seeing what uh, particular handcuffs might be, what the guardrails are, and so forth. As far as the plan summary, this again is easily obtained. Everybody's pretty familiar with that. That's like the 15-page booklet that the patient gets. They typically get that from their employer. It describes the benefits that are available, but it is so much a summary. It's very much a summary. The insurance company, when they administer that plan, they don't use the summary they use what's called the plan document. Now that can be several hundred pages. To get that is different. They will not cough that up. You've got to have the employee, the patient, go to human resources and under Department of Labor federal law, they must be given a copy of the plan document. It can be several hundred pages. So if I work for IBM, I go to human resources I might walk out with a thousand pages. I might say I need my dental plan document. I need my 401k plan document. 
I need my medical plan document. And the employer must give you that under the Department of Labor, give that to the employee. They then could in turn bring that to the office. And there can be a nominal charge like 10 cents a page that the employer can levy for the copying of that plan document. So I would encourage our listeners to get the top maybe five employers in their practice at least and get the plan documents. The first one you read may take you three, four hours. The second one is half the time. The third one is half that time. So I can go through one in about 20, 25 minutes or so, just kind of thumbing through that type of thing. Another thing with the handcuffs that typically is defined is that you must turn in the procedure on the completion date, the seat date. That is typically what we call the incurred liability date of that policy. In other words, when are they bound to pay the claim? So if you use the prep date and you're in network, almost always that is an error. And so box 24, you want to put in the date of the procedure, and that would be the completion there, Greg. Okay. But just reiterate, most of the dentists, they're very familiar with the contract. It's a little thin piece of paper. It's going to be talking about the thing that dentists most are concerned with, and that's the fee schedule. What are they going to get reimbursed? It's going to talk a little bit about that, but it's going to be referring to this policy processing manual, which is a 200-page meet. And that's the actual thing you're agreeing to. Most dentists are looking at the contract and they're signing the contract. They may not be looking at the actual policy processing manual, which is what you're agreeing to abide by. And so it's really, really critical. And that should be easily accessible on websites and and other things to get that, to look at it and see what you're really agreeing to, because there's a lot of ins and outs and little nuances that you wouldn't pick up just from looking at the contract itself. The plan summary is what the patient's coming in with saying, well, I get such and such off of basic and such and such off of major treatment. And that's all they know. And then the actual insurer is going by the plan document. That's their set of rules. That's their definitions of how to adjudicate things. If it comprises a large part of your practice, you should be asking for plan documents from somebody to go to HR and get that thing so you can see what they're really going by. And stuff like that incurred liability date, that's hidden in there. Some are wanting it on seat date. Some are wanting it on prep date. And so those are things you need to know. Without it, you're kind of flying blind. You're working and you're not really knowing what you're agreeing to. Exactly. And so it's important when you're a member of a PPO to send in a updated fee schedule as often as you can. Negotiate with that PPO. So it's very important for you to really take a look at that updated fee schedule. And another thing we like to do, Greg, is if you're in several plans to be on an ongoing basis to compare those plans. And of course, one of the major things we look at, there's other things, but the fee schedule. Remember too, that the contract or the processing policy manual, it can be amended by the payer typically with 30 to 60 days notice, and it can be done one-sided. What I mean by that is they just say, okay, they mail out the changes and say, okay, Dr. Blair, you're a member of our network. Here's the new ball game. 
And a lot of doctors, unfortunately, will get that, throw it in the trash can, and don't even realize what they did receive. It can be a one-sided amendment, which means if the doctor does nothing, it automatically goes into effect. And one thing to remember too, Greg, is that once you sign up with a PPO, the doctor's not signing any additional paperwork. In other words, they can change things, amend things again with this notice. And then the credentialing aspect to your credential with a PPO. And this means that the doctor is looked at, are they in the national practitioner database? Do they have any malpractice cases against them, state board actions and so forth, which can really affect the credentialing of the doctor. So that in itself is kind of a art and science of getting the credentialing, particularly for say a new associate that is joining the practice. Absolutely. Hey, I wanted to jump back just a little bit about updating your fee schedules to the PPO and the importance of that, because not only should you be entering a full fee every time that you're you're making charges and not the PPO fee, the reason that you're turning in these fee schedules is that PPOs are looking in a general area and they're defining what their reimbursement is going to be by kind of a an estimation of the prices in that region. If you have old outdated fees that are too low, or if you're sending in PPO fees, that's skewing the whole thing for everyone so that their reimbursement the next cycle around is not as competitive as it should be. Yes, that's absolutely true. You've got to stay, you know, on your toes, so to speak, because it is kind of a moving ball game. The various PPOs may come out with various pronouncements. You've got to keep up. So let's discuss, Greg, some of the handcuffs. The first is the difference when you're out of network, then you get your full fee. Now, the doctor can look bad, of course, on the EOB. The insurance company can always say, well, that's included or this is that. So you may have to answer to the patient when you're out of network on some of the actions that you do. But keep in mind that the mantra of the ADA is always report what you do. The coding reporting is identical. It's the write-offs that really create things. Being the write-offs, you want to absolutely make sure that you're putting in your, again, we've said this, the full fee, and that goes on box 31 of the ADA 2019 claim form. Wanting to make sure that that's there, and then you can track those write-offs. You can see how expensive it is to participate in a particular PPO. That's going to help you decide whether it's worth it or not. How much are your write-offs? So you're needing to be tracking that. It's also, like we mentioned, it's keeping the PPOs on their toes about what full fee prices should look like. That's going to help on that end as well. Another thing to consider is that deny versus disallow language that goes into every EOB. The insurance company can actually deny the claim meaning that you can still hold the patient accountable for paying the difference, but it can also disallow certain services. That means you can't even charge for that. So if you're doing a service, you're having to completely write the whole thing off. And so that goes into write-offs as well. And it's certainly something we touched on this in the last episode. There's certain things like all on four where you begin to, if they're not even allowing you to charge the patient, you're beginning to wonder whether it's worth doing or not. That's right. You've got to really be selective. 
the team has just got to really critically learn how to interpret the EOBs because we've got basic handcuffs of write-offs there, Greg, but what we see is some teams that are doing excessive write-offs that they don't have to. So that when the insurance company denies a claim, it means they're just simply not going to pay, but it is patient responsibility. But the bad one is when they disallow it, like you said, and that's when it's just non-billable and the practice has got to write it off. You can always go back and challenge those things. You can always ask for them to look at it again and reconsider payment. It's worth doing that. There's a lot of things that are automatically thrown out the first time when you get something in there if it's denied. Things that are disallowed may just be disallowed unless you start talking about going to some alternative benefit. But the denial is certainly something you can challenge and often get that turned around. That's right. Another handcuff, since we're talking about handcuffs, you're talking about how different policies coordinate benefits. And I don't want to go into too much detail on this. This could be a whole podcast in and of itself, but it's something that each plan may do differently. It's something that you need to really hone in on when you're looking at those policy processing manuals to see how these things, if you have dual insurances or more insurances than two, how these things coordinate benefits. Well, we certainly have rules on that. And again, I don't want to go into great detail, but just kind of summarize when there's dual insurance and you're out of network, it's no problem. Just look at both insurance checks and did it come up to your total fee? If it did not, then the patient owes you the difference. Say you're in two PPOs or even one PPO, that affects what we call patient responsibility. I would say this, if you see a bunch of credit balances around the office there with dual insurance, I can tell you that the team is not handling that properly. So just a a fundamental is put your full fee on each claim form put your full fee on the internal ledger when you charge that out and make no adjustments when you get that first check. And remember too that copays and deductibles go out the window. So that's just a very quick summary of that. And I agree, we need probably a podcast of its own or where there's some examples and we can show it because it's very, very tricky until you really get a handle on it correctly how to handle it. It is a little complicated. One thing I did want to say about coordination of benefits is about being able to keep up to your full practice fee, determining when overpayments happen. Overpayments only happen past what your full practice fee is. And so you're legally able to keep up to that amount. That's another reason for putting in your full practice fee when you're submitting these claims. That's correct. So for instance, if the fee was $1,000 for the work, you have not been overcompensated up to that $1,000. Remember the PPOs control how much the patient owes, but it's the secondary payer that determines how much total money that you have at the end of the day. Absolutely. I want to talk a little bit about alternative benefits and the least expensive alternative treatment or LEAT. So would you tell me a little bit about what those terms mean and when that comes into play? Right. On the doctor side, you must code what you do. So if you do a composite, you turn in the composite, the insurance company gets it and says, we don't pay for composites, but we do pay for 
amalgams. So here is an alternative benefit of an amalgam. Now you might say, is that legal? It absolutely is. So when the insurance company can design the plan, however, it could say, we don't pay for anything but green colored crowns. If that was true, and you didn't do a green colored crown, then you would not ever get a payment. So that's the alternative benefit. Now, the least expensive alternate treatment is called LEAT, L-E-A-T. This is where the payer says, I need a pan, I need a full series. What they're looking for is to see in that same arch if there's a missing tooth. So for instance, on the lower arch, let's say that they're missing a first molar on either side. Well, you try to turn that in as a bridge, let's say, or you try to turn that in as an implant, then the insurance company comes back and says, you know, this could be restored with an alternative, a, a lesser expensive partial denture. So they give Greg a fee for the partial denture toward the whole works. So you can see that it really hurts when that policy says, oh, we pay $1,500 per year then the reality is you might get paid for that partial denture and then not be able to get the other coverages there. Gotcha. Optional services. Now, this is something I think is underutilized in dentistry, something that a lot of dentists aren't really strongly aware of. Yeah, this really has uh, some confusion. Optional services, in other words, the PPOs don't want to say, well, we control the treatment here. A lot of the PPOs, and they outline this in the processing policy manual about optional services. So let me give an example. Let's say I'm doing complex treatment on Mrs. Smith. I'm doing a $50,000 rehab, uh, leveling arches, temporization in there. It's very complex. And the patient, of course, has that $1,500 maximum. And also under the PPO, let's say my crown fee is $1,200, but the PPO fee is, say, $800 or $900. Then under normal circumstances, I would have to do that at the $800 level, and I just cannot do that. So what do we have? There may possibly be a workaround where the doctor and the patient enter into a written agreement for, say, this $50,000 case the doctor gets a lab bill estimate plus put in maybe a 25% contingency on the lab cost, then that's presented to the PPO to sign off on on that specific situation. And so that's an example of where optional services can really come into good play. So that's done on a case-by-case basis. That's not a general thing on a particular procedure code. It's done on a certain case that you think is going to be more challenging than normal, you can, on the front end, talk to your insurer and say, this is going to be more difficult than normal. My lab bills are going to be higher. The time it's going to take me is going to be longer. I need to get reimbursed more to be able to do this case. That's correct. Now, some doctors think, well, I'm a hot shot. I'm the best dentist in North Carolina, and my patients bow down to me. And in this PPO, I want to use a better lab I want to charge an extra $200. So under optional services, will you let me charge all my PPO patients this higher fee? And that's where the PPO is going to say, frankly, get lost, Dr. Blair. We don't need you in our network. 
So you can't do it on a general basis, but a case-by-case basis, optional services is something you can use. And particularly like an all-loan four or something, unfortunately, we see that fees are just out of touch. Sometimes I'll see an all-loan four code uh, with a PPO and it's like $3,500 and it doesn't even cover the lab bill. So there, you Mm -hmm. simply... Don't You've do the lost. work, Greg, or you get the optional services approved because the doctor just cannot do it. Yeah, because if you're abiding by your contract, you're having to write that off. You're losing money. That doesn't make sense. Let's move along. We're kind of running short on time. I did want to touch about the things that you need to do for claim submission if you're in network. We mentioned filing on completion date, on prep date, or seat date versus prep date. Most of them actually want it filed on the seat date or the completion date. And that's the incurred liability date for the insurer. Now, this does not include ortho. Ortho, when the bands and the aligners go in the mouth, they treat that differently. They do it in stages. They also want timely filing. And sometimes this can be affected by waiting on that secondary insurance. You filed with one, you finally got something back. You turn into the secondary. The secondary takes forever to get you your money back. You may be in trouble for timely filing on the first insurer getting everything wrapped up. So needing to be aware of that and account for that. Submitting all charges. This is a big one to me because a lot of dentists don't understand that if you're doing bleaching trays or something that you know is not a covered benefit, you still have to turn that in. And it's also possible that the insurance may disallow it. Yes, that's right. For instance, tooth whitening. If you're in a PPO, read very carefully. Odds are that you're supposed to turn that into the PPO. Is that for purposes of them paying the claim? And the answer is generally tooth whitening, as you know, is not covered. But what they can do is say, well, Dr. Blair, that fee there for $600 for Zoom is excessive. You've got to write off $300. So they have fee capped me for a non-covered procedure. So that's why it's very important, Greg, to know coding because we submit the tooth whitening on a per arch basis. And so if I had a $600 Zoom, I would put that in under code 9972 upper arch 300, 9972 lower arch 300. And then that $300 fee hopefully passes through and the uh, PPO does not affect it or affects it very little. Whereas if I had turned in the full $600 fee, I might be taking a tremendous haircut. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's critical to do to submit all those charges. You mentioned about fee capping once again. A lot of people think that because their state has fee capping laws, that's not a thing they have to worry about. But again, I refer you back to our last podcast when we talked about plans that are governed federally versus uh, fully insured plans, they go by different rules. And those fee capping laws still apply to probably about half your patients. And the way that those uh, laws are written too, it does vary from state to state to some degree. I think Iowa has the most uh, liberal interpretation. At this point, Greg, 40 states that have passed the legislation, which is wonderful, but that legislation only applies to what we discussed last time was the insured plan. The insured plan is under the insurance commissioner of that state and also under any state law. 
But remember that the self-funded plans, the federal plans can do what they want to. They're not under the jurisdiction of the insurance commissioner. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Blair, I believe we're hitting our time limit for this episode. There's so much we could discuss about PPOs. I think we could talk about this for hours. Probably will over the course of further podcasts. But we're going to wrap up today. I appreciate everybody listening and tuning in. We've got another great podcast coming up. Yes, it's a pleasure to be here today. And please tune in to our next podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Practice Booster, an e-assist publishing company. To learn more, visit dentalcodeadvisor.com.